Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Jennifer Sheehy Skeffington, and I'm an assistant professor of social psychology at the LSE Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science. It's my pleasure to welcome you to one of the first events of the LSE Festival, and this really is the start of a whole week, right up until Saturday, of virtual events, all of which are free and open to all. So please be sure to check out the rest of the festival, consisting of talks that are both live and also pre-recorded at the Festival Hub. For those of you Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is uh, hashtag LSE Festival. This is being streamed live on Facebook in addition to Zoom and is being recorded for later posting both on the LSE YouTube page and on LSE podcasts, both subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. Uh, to submit these, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. These questions can be posted and voted on at any time, but we'll wait until the end of the talks um, for me to pose as many of them as I can to the speakers. As you can pose the questions, please let us know your name and affiliation so that we can share a variety of perspectives. So the festival theme is shaping the post-COVID world. It's really about the direction that the world could take and sh maybe should be taking after the COVID-19 crisis and how social science research can help shape it. And we on the steering committee were very excited in the context of this to see um, proposals and ideas coming from a number of LSE departments, geography, psychological, behavioral science and social policy, all of which were looking at a behavioral science lens to this and all of which focused on the ways in which we can think about what behavioral science can offer us very differently after the pandemic to before. Behavioral science normally is about individuals um, and helping individuals make better decisions for their own benefit. But one thing that COVID has taught us is that all individual behaviors have a collective dimension. And this plays out in a number of ways. I mean, firstly, individual behavior always affects others and even our own private decisions about whether we want to go for a walk, it turns out affects uh, broader collective outcomes. Of course, individual behavior is affected by the wider social context. There's an important role for social norms and narratives therein. And the way that we relate to each other and the way that we relate to the state has, as we've seen through COVID, been radically transformed in ways we might not have imagined otherwise. And that might open up new challenges or it might open up um, new possibilities. Um, and in particular, possibilities that help us think about the next big global challenge. And certainly the role of the climate crisis will be very um, on the tops of our minds as we consider these questions today. So I'm really delighted to have four experts in behavioral science focused on the public good with us today to discuss them and introduce them all now. First, we'll hear from Sunshine Banerjee, who's a third year doctoral student in environmental economics at the LSE. Then we'll hear from Dr. Ganga Schrieder, an assistant professor in behavioral science at LSE's Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science, and also an affiliate at the Department of Geography and Environment. Then Professor Nick Chater, um, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School, will speak. And finally, Dr Adam Oliver, a behavioural economist and behavioural public policy analyst and associate professor at the Department of Social Policy at the LSE, will finish. Uh, we'll then have a couple of questions from me and we'll open up to questions from the audience. We do need to finish promptly at 3.30. So with uh, no more said, I will hand over to Sunshine Banerjee, who's going to consider how the uptake and efficacy of different behavioural interventions has changed due to COVID-19. Thank you so much, Jennifer, and uh, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for making it this afternoon. It's always a great pressure when you go first, um, but I, I'm going to do my best to sort of uh, make it good for the others. 
Um, one of the things that Jennifer rightly mentioned was that with the onset of the pandemic, we have seen uh, large scale shifts in the social fabric of our lives um, and also sort of behavioral shifts. Um, one of the things in these challenging times that we've sort of seen is, let's say, this event. Normally last year when I was speaking, it was limited in a room um, with 100, 120 people. Um, and this year it's, it's online. You can have like up to 200, 250 and more. Who knows? Um, Every researcher, when COVID sort of began, had to jump on the bandwagon. Um, literally everyone I was speaking to had some COVID agenda. Um, and so did we. Um, I did with Ganga, who's, uh, who's here, and one of our other colleagues, uh, Manu. So we started thinking about paternalistic measures and uh, how these hard measures have sort of come about to be introduced um, in tackling COVID. And uh, I use the word or the phrase popular paternalism because this is what we first published um, in, in a blog piece and that sort of led to the research agenda. But before we sort of get started, um, let me give you a story. Um, we've all sort of heard about Aesop's fables. And one of the common ones that comes to mind is um, this fight between the north wind and the sun. I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard it, but I'll just repeat it um, for you. Um, the north wind and the sun were kind of discussing when they saw a passerby or traveler um, sort of go. And they got into this argument of who's stronger than the other. And the bet was whoever can get the passerby to take off his coat um, wins and the other has to sort of accept his defeat. Now, the north wind blew as fast as it could. Um, but what happened was that the passerby actually put on his coat even tighter. And at this point, the sun just shone gently and, and became warmer and the passerby took off his coat. And this sort of gives us a message that at times um, softer or libertarian policies like persuasion um, and sort of behavioral change policies might be more effective than harder measures. And this has been driving our debate for a long time. So what I'm going to show you here uh, are two sort of survey polls quite widely used in the in the UK. Um, on the left, you see the British social attitudes. And this is a sort of libertarian authoritarian um, scale. And uh, I am giving you roughly 25 years. And you can see that over this period of time, um, favoring libertarian measures have sort of increased by two percentage points. Um, but the decline of authoritarian um, uh, regimes and, and favoring that has actually gone down by six percentage points. Um, I'm not talking anything about causality um, here. It's just a snapshot figure uh, for everyone. And on the right, um, it's a more recent poll by YouGov in 2012, which kind of shows you a similar picture where you can see that people do not like being told what to do. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of the nanny state. Um, whenever the state tries to do something, people sort of undermine it and say, we know what to do. Um, but things have been changing more recently. So here, what you can see is from one of my studies um, that I did after COVID broke out last year, and uh, we use the inventory um, of the environmental attitudes to measure how people sort of vote in favor of authoritarian measures to protect the environment. And you can see a large proportion, over 80% of uh, people in three waves of survey. The first two were pilots, the third one um, was the experimental wave. Um, and people largely were in favor of using authoritarian regimes to protect the environment. Um, and on the right now, what you can see is my work with Ganga and, and Manu that I was talking about. We thought, um, how are these public policy preferences actually changing? And we did a quick sort of narrative review. 
Um, and what we realized is that this consensus of harder measures or the take of harder measures by the government is actually quite widespread across all the countries. Um, now, this figure is from June, um, but we have also revisited this recently in sort of uh, writing our paper. And in the UK, typically, this, this support has been consistently high with the three lockdowns. It's been above 75 percent, um, if we were to say. So actually, are we going towards more authoritarian measures? Are we shifting from this libertarian perspective to this authoritarian perspective? This is the first point that I want to send across. And in this recent work by Miriam and, and colleagues on Brit Britain's core values, what they actually do is they form these clusters of people, um, depending on the affiliation of different kinds of moral actions. And they tend to show that everyone who is more disposed, either from the threat of what's happening or by considering what's happening now, um, these people who have an authoritarian disposition are actually more inclined to support authoritarian measures. And, and those would be your loyal nationalists, um, the, the sort of traditionalists or the hardcore conserv uh, the conservationists. Um, so yeah, there is this public policy preference shift that we are seeing on an overall. Um, but also what's fascinating is that it's not just a shift away from libertarian measures to more sort of hardcore authoritarian regimes. Um, even within this broad pool of libertarian measures, the softer policies, we're actually seeing a shift. Now, this is more from my PhD research where we have been trying to use um, different interventions um, and libertarian interventions through a randomized control trial. And the way we sort of group them is either they're completely heuristic. So we are people who have two systems of, of the brain. Um, system one is fast and make quick decisions, jump to conclusions. System two is kind of slow. So there are different ways of engaging with the with these group of people. So the ones that work on these heuristic measures, as you can see here, are things like quick rules, um, teaching people how to do things quickly or default measures, which is a nudge. There could also be some sort of reflective tools like citizen forums where you sort of engage and deliberate on different kinds of things, um, form goal implementations. Um, okay, if this is happening, then what you're going to do. And this is something that we have proposed in my work with um, Peter John at King's. We call it um, Nudge Plus. Um, and it combines these sort of system one and system two measures. Now, what I'm showing you here are the effect sizes that I've plotted um, from the two different waves. One was pre-COVID in January, which is wave one. And the other was after the onset of the pandemic when we had like two lockdowns. And you can see that the, the shift in the, in the actual efficacy of these measures is quite drastic. So post-COVID, when we have the onset, heuristically driven measures like nudges and the effectiveness have actually gone down. Um, whereas things like reflective tools have actually gone up. So is this shock, is this exogenous shock actually making people to think more and engage more? Um, and this is the second point that I'm trying to make, that even within this broad set of libertarian policies, there's actually a change in the spectrum when we see the effectiveness of these measures. And just to sort of broadly conclude my statement, um, we're thinking more broadly in terms of are these preferences then stable and sticking to one domain, or they're spilling over across the domains. And to kind of take this research agenda forward, I'm currently doing two studies. Um, one is actually um, quite fun. The first one, I ran it on my students at LSE that I teach, um, Development Econ First Year. And uh, what I tried to do is I tried to prime them with the experience of um, COVID 
and then see what is their support uh, for an, uh, for anti sort of um, uh, poverty measures in terms of their political support for a petition uh, for an emergency UBI. And uh, the current results actually show that uh, people who have faced uh, COVID in a, in a more stronger way are actually more likely and 1.5 times to be precise, more likely to support this petition. So in a way, um, the experience of an exogenous shock is mediating how we behave in different domains. Um, the second study sort of also building up on this kind of norm and notion, and probably Ganga will be mentioning this even more detail, is we're seeing that if um, people have supported harder COVID measures, um, are they equally likely to support um, harder measures for environmental protection? So someone who is in favor of travel bans um, and let's say quarantine and, and these different kinds of things, are these people then also the ones who would support maybe let's say a carbon tax um, or maybe a personalized consumption budget or a travel ban, a, a business ban and things like this. So yeah, on the overall my three main messages is we tend to see the shift from libertarian to authoritarian measures. Um, even within the pool of libertarian measures, we're seeing that there is a change in terms of the efficacy of heuristic versus more reflective tools. And thirdly, we need to investigate whether these preference shifts are actually related to just a domain or they're spilling across the domains. So on that note, I'm going to leave it to Jennifer and yeah. We'll come back later. Thank you. Thank you, Sanjana. Great opener and a nice uh, segue, perhaps straight over into Ganga's work, looking at the impact of COVID-19 on policy and behavior change, addressing environmental crises. Great. Thank you so much. This is um, a real pleasure to be here um, and share the virtual stage with you guys. So I'll be looking at COVID-19 and climate change as intersecting crises. And I think it's been nearly a year since uh, at least the UK went into a sort of hard lockdown. And I sort of wanted to take a step back and think about how did we really get here? So where did COVID-19 come from? And really, how did we find ourselves in this place? So there seems to be a scientific consensus, at least we're edging towards one, that COVID-19 is really a case of a zoonotic spillover. What that essentially means is it was a, it was a virus that was transmitted to humans from animals. Other examples of this would be HIV, Ebola, SARS, MERS. Um, in fact, quite a few of the recent um, epidemics that we've had have been these zoonotic spillovers. And this has made policymakers, researchers, and those working at the intersection of public health and environmental um, issues really think about what is the root cause driving COVID-19, but also is it similar to one driving climate change? And while it's very difficult to have a, you know, real causal, a clear causal connection that climate change is in fact driving an increased risk of zoonotic spillovers and pandemics, um, there is a sort of softer consensus that human destruction of nature is one of the root causes, for instance, through deforestation. So deforestation is primarily um, driven at the moment by agriculture and food production practices which essentially means wild animals which might have a host of germs end up you know interacting with other animals as well as humans which provide more opportunities for previous sort of viruses like like for instance COVID-19 to really make the jump into humans. Other strands of literature have focused on how poor air quality and environmental quality for instance increases the vulnerability to these um, sort of you know COVID-19 in particular through respiratory illness, for instance. And this reflects a sort of 
broad understanding, which is historical, that environmental and climatic conditions matter for um, the, you know, for disease and, and epidemics. So we've known, I mean, experts in, are increasingly recognizing this and knowing this. In fact, in 2012, there was a book um, by David Quammen on the fact that actually spillovers are more likely to happen in the era of climate change. Um, but has the public also accepted that this is the case? Is it salient in the minds of the public? This is an important question because really, if we understand that the cause of potentially things like COVID-19 are linked to climate change, there are opportunities really to design policies in ways that address both. So what's tricky here is really, when you think about what we understand in terms of the cause of COVID-19, there is deep scientific uncertainty. We don't know exactly which animal, for instance, the virus came from. This sort of creates a factual void. Um, and this also gives room for multiple narratives to sort of capture the public imagination, which might be pushed by different sections of the media, by different types of policymakers, different sorts of experts, each of whom can attribute a different story for the cause of COVID-19 and potentially its ensuing policy prescriptions and solutions as well. So, for instance, um, one, when we think about the cause, we could think about the fact that maybe actually it was not a zoonotic pound-over. It, it was actually a spillover from a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, which was sort of one of the stories making the rounds then. Um, typically, this is sort of seen as a blame narrative. And more broadly, people have shown that during crisis, different narratives sort of can take place. So the blame narrative is one where you identify a particular party and, and outline that their role and their behavior was really largely responsible for the crisis. Whereas others, um, for instance, if we talk about animals and the role of actually zoonotic spillovers, animals would be seen as the proximate cause. More broadly, if you look at moving away from just the specific cause in terms of animals, you could think about actually humans might be the distal cause or the slightly more distant cause, because it is largely these trends of anthropogenic environmental change which are driving the risk of these pandemics. So really different narratives can provide different explanations for how the world has come to be, how we find ourselves in this period where we're Zooming instead of uh, having an in-person seminar. And, and all these stories can also therefore shift public policy preferences to deal with this issue and even possibly behavior. When we have deep scientific uncertainty, which is often a case during a dynamic crisis, narratives and stories are really fundamental to understanding how these crises come to be and what to do about them. And this is what we were interested in studying last year. So we did a study where we tried to look at whether different narratives have different implications for how people um, support different environmental policies, precisely policies which actually are things which are dealing and linked to climate change. So for instance, destruction of wildlife, uh, attacks on meat, etc. Importantly, we looked at whether intersectional explanations, intersectional crisis narratives, which really locate the cause of COVID-19, um, both in the larger anthropogenic driven climate change issues in terms of habitat loss, um, for instance, for agriculture, as well as more specific explanations, for instance, animals being the proximate cause versus a completely non-environmental, non-climate change related narrative, for instance, talking about the lab in Wuhan, whether these different stories had different implications for the public appetite for climate policy. So we essentially ran an experiment 
on, on an online platform. And uh, we exposed people to basically four different stories, a controlled story, which had nothing to do with COVID and narratives around um, what caused COVID and three alternative stories, one which had the lab, one embedded along with animal and human as distal and as proximate and distal causes, one just mentioning the animal cause and the other mentioning the animal and the distal cause. What we found essentially was that stories mentioning human action as the distal cause increase support for conservation and climate policy. This is really interesting because the moment you drop the human bit and just kept the, the information that animals were responsible in terms of zoonotic spillovers, or if we added the, the lab as a counter narrative, support was attenuated. So we didn't really find much of a difference across these different stories. But when we focused on stories with just the animal and human cause, it boosted support for climate policy. It also interestingly boosted feelings that firms and governments should be responsible for taking swift action to mitigate climate change, which suggests that actually narratives which sort of provide different explanations for how the world come to be also has the capacity to influence policy choices. We also found some effects on donations behavior towards the environment, but the effects were a bit smaller. The other interesting thing we found was that actually these stories, which talked about the role of environmental change as intersecting anthropogenic and environmental changes being one of the reasons for COVID-19, really were less well known. And unfortunately, these were the policy, uh, these were the narratives that environmental policymakers were really pushing at the time. So the UNEP came out with statements around this, the WHO has since then come around with statements around this, but also um, ecologists and scientists like Jane Goodall, David Attenborough have all sort of made this claim in more or less recent times. So this suggests that actually we have to think about the stories we tell quite carefully because really that influences the public appetite for climate policy. Um, but it also suggests that these stories might cause shifts in the way people relate to each other. And Sunshine mentioned how actually maybe this might cause shifts in the way people also relate to the role of policy apart from each other as well. And, and potentially there might be these spillovers across domains. So, with Jennifer and um, an excellent uh, student of ours, Max Clooney, so big thanks for Max for doing this research, we've started to explore whether during COVID-19 and beyond, there have been shifts in the way we actually talk to each other in terms of has there been an appetite for more sort of collective mindsets and oriented conversations in relation to COVID? So Max, his excellent work, so thank you, Max, um, basically dug out tweets from a COVID tweet database by Chen et al. to check what proportion of these tweets were I-oriented versus we-oriented. The basic intuition here is if COVID has caused the sea change in the way we relate to each other, um, as also in terms of the way and the importance of you know, relating to each other as a collective, we might see an increase in the number of we-oriented tweets vis-a-vis eye-oriented tweets, which are more individualistic, arguably. And in fact, our, the initial, this is very preliminary data. So, I mean, and, and, and we still need to figure out what's driving these patterns. But the key takeaway here is that actually since March 2020 last year, up until a bit afterwards, we see there are a lot more COVID-related tweets which have eye, which have we words, sorry, which is essentially the green line, which is slightly higher. 
we also see that actually reoriented tweets are more likely to be retweeted and shared amongst people, which means they're actually causing more sort of conversation as well. I mean, this is quite exciting because really what we want to also know is if these we-oriented tweets or COVID tweets also do mention climate change, because that means that not just is there a shift in the way we relate to each other, but also in the way we're relating to nature and the climate. Um, unfortunately, we don't see that many tweets in the COVID database which have mentioned climate change or there's a mention of environmental issues. So previously where we saw we-oriented tweets were like over around 20%, for instance. So here we see it's over around 20%, um, more or less, in terms of the shares. But in terms of the total tweets, we see that over around 3% um, of total tweets were sort of we-oriented tweets. In terms of climate change, less than 1% of, of COVID tweets really mentioned climate change. All of this suggests, essentially, there's a lot more room to sort of link up in the public imagination and conversation that the fact that these two crises might not be in isolation, but actually might have some common root causes. And this is important. We just need to, I'm afraid we're quite over now. If that's okay, great. We've got your summary slides. Sorry, I really allowed you to present our data. <laughs> you want to say, um, I'll, let you, I'll let you give one last, um, okay, there you go. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Next person, you've heard enough from me. <laughs> really powerful. And in that case, we'll move straight on. Um, so we can't consider COVID separately to climate change. And, and yet um, we seem to be doing that. Um, <laughs> now on to Nick Chater then, um, in terms of behavioural principles. Given that, what behavioural principles can help us to, to build back greener post-COVID? Thanks very much. I'm just um, finding my... Um, just trying to share the screen. Sorry about this. Sort of... I've lost the relevant page. I don't know why that's happened. Sorry about this. this is rather puzzling. Um, hopefully, this won't take more than a second to fix. Do you want to give us a take-home point, Ganga? Since uh, I robbed it of you. Yes, that's a good idea. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess my take-home point is actually when we think about how these crises are interconnected to each other, it opens up the space for actually figuring out how policy can attack both and how changing behavior can attack both. And there hasn't been, I think, in my opinion, enough of that conversation, at least in the public space, as we've seen from whatever data we've managed to generate. But um, maybe Nick will also be touching upon those opportunities in terms of the policy space. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Off you go, Nick. Now I think I have it. Can you, is it my, my, um, my slides come through? Very good. Too, too many windows open. So, yes, I mean, I'm going to carry on very much from um, what um, Sanjian and, and Ganga have been talking about from a slightly different angle. That's um, a very, very nice, uh, nice intro for my very short sex section. Um, so I'm interested in the question of um, how, in practical terms, we the recovery from COVID and the changes of behaviour that we've uh, engaged in during COVID will inform how we can deal with climate issues. And this has been a, a live issue for me because I'm on the UK's Climate Change Committee. And for that, I wrote a little report on this topic, so I'll be drawing on that report. Um, but this is, I think, something that is of really major significance to um, sort of UK public policy at the moment. Um, so people are scrambling around thinking, how can we use the lessons from, from COVID to, to, to help really engage with climate? Uh, because it is obviously such a pressing issue at the moment. Um, I want to just remind everybody how much life has changed and how incredible it is. It would have seemed inconceivable, I think, that we could have changed our lives so much in response to a 
obviously we've changed our patterns of working, we've reduced business travels. Um, it's quite possible that we'll have certainly um, substantial, maybe even permanent uh, changes in economic geography because of those changes. So uh, the, the way in which we have to uh, work, um, we can now work remotely when we didn't, well, couldn't before, could potentially change the, uh, the pressure on forming large cities and uh, changing property prices, office costs, all of these things. Shifting to digital is something we've all been doing. Home delivery has taken over from the high street to some degree. Some of these, of course, are trends that are already happening, um, but they're uh, certainly been happening much quicker uh, than we would have imagined. Some, of course, from a climate point of view, have been good from a greenhouse gas point of view. Some, it's not so clear. For example, the home delivery uh, shift is uh, is not clear whether that's positive or negative. I don't think we understand that yet. Um, I want to focus on three behavioural principles, three things about how how we respond as individuals, um, which are sort of wired really into how we work, um, which are relevant to this issue. I'm certainly not going to, going to resolve the question of how we can carry over COVID lessons to, to climate, but uh, just to bear in mind three key principles. So they are the power law of practice, which is roughly that we get quicker at things and we do them more. We all know that. The fact that the mind is fundamentally uh, interested in comparisons rather than absolutes. And the flexibility, and we've already heard about, a bit about this in the, the previous talks, of the social contract, the way we interact with others and the state. So the power law of practice, um, you take any task and any uh, level of aggregation, a single individual, a company, a nation, and you find the same pattern, which is that when you do something more often, you get quicker at it. So all of these graphs here are log-log graphs. That's quite important. Um, and I'm sorry, and Nick, do you mind if I interrupt you for a moment? It seems your audio is going in and out um, so yeah. quite a loud. So if there's anything, right. you blocking um, your mic. Let me, hang on. Just in case there's a mic being blocked by hand movements. Thanks. Let me switch. Thank you. To this, this will sort it. So the uh, yeah, whatever, whatever level of aggregation you're looking at, you get graphs that have, have the same form. So on the, all of these graphs, on the x-axis, you've got log number of repetitions. So in the uh, the uh, top left-hand case, this is cigar rolling. How many cigars have you rolled in your life in Havana factories? And on the right-hand axis is how quick are you at rolling a single cigar? And that, again, on a log scale. And you get a roughly straight line graph. So as you do things more often, you get quicker in a very predictable way. But that's not just true for cigar rolling. It's true for uh, lab arithmetic tasks. It's true for the uh, the um, cost of a single module of solar PV. It's true across entire industries. Now, this is very important, I think, because it means that what the crisis has done is it's forced us to start doing new things. And once we start doing new things, we get better at them. And suddenly, it may be that now those things are just the best way to do things. So where it was now painful and awkward to do things digitally, now we've got the hang of it. And in fact, we'll never go back. And of course, I think that's very, very interesting because it makes policymakers tend to be very averse to big changes because it sounds very awkward. The big Changes are awkward at the start, but once you've made those changes for a while, the change can become embedded. Of course, we've seen that with the massive fall in, 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 in wind and solar. Once you start to grow those industries, they become cheaper and, and potentially competitive with other fossil, fossil fuel sources of energy and sustainable on their own. Comparison. So on the left-hand side here, we have um, a completely uniform um, 
gray bar and both ends of the bar are exactly the same gray if you covered it up uh, you find it was just a completely um uh, completely no, no shading on it at all but when you put it on a shaded background you find that the left hand end looks light and the right hand end looks dark and that's because the brain is a comparison machine so the um the left hand end is dark is light in comparison to the black behind it and the right hand end is uh, dark looks like a dark gray in comparison with the fairly whitish uh, background. And you see the same thing, this comparison tendency is the same everywhere, famously with happiness data. Um, as um, people's in incomes go up, their life satisfaction doesn't really change at all. Within time frames, and uh, with a particular snapshot of time, there is some relation, not a very strong one, but there's some relation between income and uh, life satisfaction. But across time, we can all get richer and we don't really notice. Of course, that's very important too, um, from the point of view of uh, almost any public policy. But the general point here is we're much more adaptable than we think. We tend to think that things like changes of diet or less travel will be enormously painful because we're comparing to where we are. But actually, we're comparison machines who, when we once we've made a change for a while, will will start comparing with the current new normal. So when I think forwards, I think, oh, if I suddenly had to travel less, that would be terrible. But after I've, I'm living in a world, if I'm living in a world where less travel is possible, then I'm now comparing to um, my current uh, week and the next week after, to other weeks I've had recently, and everybody else's week, and we're all not traveling very much. So it's surprisingly okay. And the changes we've ha had to go through during COVID have been quite horrendous and extraordinary, and for many people, terrible. But um, I think for many people, it's surprising just how rapidly we have adapted nonetheless. Renegotiating the social contract, this goes back to the attitudes to the state that Sancho mentioned at the beginning. Um, I think it's true both in relation to us, in relation to how we treat each other and how we treat governments, that we can change the norms by which we live extremely quickly by what I'm calling here mutual agreement. Um, so once we've decided collectively, we really need to be careful about social distancing, we really ought to wear masks, and suddenly that can become the new normal incredibly fast. So something that was weird, um, felt very uncomfortable, would be viewed as embarrassing, suddenly becomes the absolute opposite. And I think that's a very, very important message for net, net zero, because to get to net zero, we're going to have to change a lot of things we do. And that can seem terribly, terribly hard uh, and, and also very weird. Like we'd be, if we're trying to make those changes ourselves, we'll be somehow sticking out from everybody else. But we can all make these changes together collectively. And that makes it um, both easier for all of us, um, but also, in fact, in, some, in many ways, self-reinforcing. So once we've made those changes, um, to do something the opposite, to do the opposite suddenly feels like the outlier, strange behavior. So we've managed to change um, uh, from a world in which handshakes are normal to being uh, absolutely anathema. Uh, we've started home working in person meeting Zooms. Um, what will happen to the office when we go back to um, post-COVID? Well, we don't know, but those changes have occurred very quickly and that's very heartening for our ability to, to react to, to climate change. So very quickly summarizing, we have to build back, we have to build back greener. Um, we want to go with the grain of human behavior. Um, we want to lock in green behaviors, things that we've changed and are good for the, for the planet. We want to stick with those and not go back. Um, we also want to build on the fact that when we get used to having less or more of something, we can we can uh, deal with that quite well. So things we have got yet used to, perhaps less, uh, less traveling uh, by air, especially, maybe we should try and keep used to that because that's something that we can we can uh, do without fairly little pain. And of course, um, the renegotiation of the social, social contract. Here, I think the critical 
or a critical question is how much we think of some of the changes we've made recently as emergency measures, which we need to cast aside as much as, as soon as possible, rather than thinking of some of them at least as the way of the future. So it could be that some business travel switching to, to Zoom and perhaps some of the meetings like this one, these might be not the whole of the future, but they may be part of the future. And if they are, that'll be very good for the planet. So with that, I'll stop and hand back to Jennifer. Thank you very much, Nick. Excellent. So we've really dug down quite into this, uh, into the question of um, changing behaviours for addressing the climate crisis. Now, with Adam, we'll go back to the big picture again and to some of the questions that Sunshine raised in his first one in terms of thinking about shifting ways we relate to the state as well as each other and where that leaves us. Thank you. Am I there? Am I there? Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm not going to use any slides today. I'm just going to make a few comments um, about where I think um, behavioural insights as informing public policy should go in the sort of post-pandemic world. I'm going to call that behavioural public policy just because um, that's quite a common term these days. So informing policy with behavioural insights, I'm calling that behavioural public policy. The way I see it, there's, you know, it's a little more complex than this, but there's two broad objectives, really, of behavioural public policy maybe a public policy generally. And those are to focus either on the sort of externality concerns where you're trying to change people's behaviours because they're imposing harms on other people in some sense, or whether you're trying to adopt a paternalistic uh, approach that focuses upon internality. So you're trying to change people's behaviours because they're imposing harms on themselves, right? So for me, that's a very important distinction. And within those two, within those two objectives, there's two further distinctions, I think. You can have hard and soft approaches to both. So an example of a an hard externality consideration might be to ban end-of-aisle alcohol sales, right? So the supermarkets are paid, I think, these days by uh, sometimes by the drinks industry to place alcohol in a very salient position in the supermarkets, place them at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the aisles, it becomes salient, and people tend to be up, buy more of this product than they than they might otherwise uh, purchase. So that's potentially potentially imposing a harm. You know, there'd have to be more discussion, but it's potentially imposing a harm on other people. So you might have a straight ban on that. That would be a hard externality consideration. You can have soft externality approaches. An example might be to place green footprints on a pavement that guide people towards um, trash cans, right, or or rubbish bins, as the British say, <laughs> right. Um, so people can still throw their litter in the, on the floor if they want to, but they're sort of guided, they're encouraged to behave more responsibly for the environment for other people. You can have hard paternalism. An example of that might be to force people to save a percentage of their income towards their retirements, um, if you argue that that's good for those persons themselves. right? And you can have soft forms of paternalism as well. So, for example, the very famous case, I think it's been mentioned already today, of reordering desserts on canteen shelves. You know, you put the apples at the front, the cheesecake at the back, the apples are more salient, the cheesecake are less salient, you can still buy the cheesecake, it's a soft intervention, but people are more likely to buy the apples now, so the argument goes, right? Now, the dominant framework in behavioural public policy to date, in terms of the rhetoric, has been on soft forms of paternalism. Libertarian paternalism is a framework that informs the famous nudge interventions. Um, Now, over the years, one of my big bugbears, really, if that's something that's guided quite a lot of my work over the last few years, is that there's been a confusion introduced in this whole debate between the internality and the externality considerations. So if you look at a lot of the interventions that are proposed as nudges these days, 
They actually focus upon externality considerations, not internality considerations. And the green footprints that I've just mentioned a moment ago, they're often proposed as nudges. They're not nudges, they're focused on externality considerations. This whole sort of area has been infused with this confusion, it seems to me. Now, some of those, one of the reasons this is important, I'm going to park this to one side, this externality, uh, internality um, problem that I see as a massive problem, but I'm just part that to one side at the moment. Related to it is that for some people in behavioral economics, not so many behavioral economists, but some of them, including me, uh, we don't think that soft paternalism, indeed any form of paternalism, is the appropriate direction to go for behavioral public policy. And the reason we think that is because, or the reason I think that, I should say, I shouldn't speak for other people, is because people in their own personal private lives have a, multi have a multitude of different objectives that they're trying to achieve in their lives, perhaps. Um, even, if it's to, if, even if their objective is to achieve nothing at all in their lives, that's fine, right? People have a multi multifarious desires on how they would want to live their own lives. And a third party policymaker cannot possibly discern, as far as I can see, you know, what every individual wants for themselves. Right? So over personal lifestyle choices, we would place or I would place a great premium on freedom, on autonomy. So as long as people are not harming other people, um, I would say that, you know, we should let people live their lives as they, as they freely choose to live their own lives because they are the best, they are in the from people can achieve their own personal today. Now, for me, paternalism, therefore, risks a degree of authoritarianism. What do we say about the pandemic? So in the pandemic, I think it goes without me saying this, but there's been huge constraints on our personal freedoms, haven't there? Right. And those, those behavioralists that have been asked to contribute to the policy debate, mostly health psychologists, I think, but some um, behavioral, uh, some, sorry, so, social psychologists as well, you often see on the news, they seem to very strongly support that approach, these restrictions on our freedoms. Um, I think they've overplayed or underplayed, I should say, the, uh, the negative consequences of lockdown. But on balance, I think these restrictions on our freedom have been placed principally for externality considerations. We've been asked to behave in certain ways because this is good, say, for the NHS, or it's good for other people, you save other people's lives. So on balance, that seems to be, on balance, probably an appropriate you know, response that we, we've made to place these restrictions on people's freedoms. But what about in the post-pandemic world? Right. Now, we've all learned, I think, how precious freedom is over the last year, or most of us have, I think. Um, and this gives some justification, I think, for my, my, my preferred approach of not being too paternalistic. Do not interfere too much in the personal lifestyle choices that people have, unless they're imposing harms on other people. But I have a slight concern that because all this sort of externality and internality considerations have been all mixed up within behavioural public policy, and one of the hangovers of the pandemic will be to strengthen the arm of those who feel they're in a better position to decide what is good for people in their own personal lives than the people are themselves. I think it may, there's a risk that it could really strengthen the arm of the paternalists, right? So uh, to conclude there, I think that we should guard against that. 
I think we should conclude that we are all the authors of our own lives and that most of us want that. And most of us should want that. Right? Uh, and that no one really has the authority to interfere with that objective. Okay, Jennifer, I'll pass over to you on that note. Thank you. Um, provocative and big picture and uh, <clears throat> taking us all the way through all the rest of the talks there too. Um, I think I might um, just actually use that, um, use this common link between um, Adam and Sunshine and to, um, to go right into a couple of the questions that have already come up. Because one common thing that's there is, is this idea of an authoritarian shift. Okay, so we're shifting the way we're thinking about our relationship with the state and we're much more okay with stuff that we would have thought was crazy or that we would have condemned in other countries if we weren't experiencing a pandemic. Um, a couple of people have asked about this. I'll just um, um, give them due credit. So Nat Rico has asked about um, wh what will happen to this. There's a kind of questions about the endurance of it and what's this based on? And it'd be interesting to hear both Adams and Sunshine's response maybe. Do we think it'll re regress back to pre-pandemic levels um, when it passes or is it here to stay? That was from um, Nat Rico. Um, Carl Shing asked about the long-term political electoral implications of uh, this shift in authoritarian sentiment. And Anandita Sarawal um, about an authoritarian disposition. So what's presumed there? Do we think that this is a dispositional shift, um, i.e. a shift in underlying um, personality traits, such as authoritarianism, social dominance orientation, um, or a more situational one? Um, so I'm not maybe sunshine if you want to go first with that and then and then we could hear from Adam after. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you for all the questions. I think personally speaking, um, we do not have enough evidence in the literature to kind of point out at, at any of this to say that whether this is going to be a sustained shift. Um, one of the research agendas that I share with Ganga and Manwin, we've been looking at that quite closely, is that there is hardly enough material out there in the literature that has, first of all, compared instruments one against the other. So nothing has been pitted one against the other. Um, there are very few studies that evaluate instruments in a joint frame um, versus a single frame, making it harder for us to sort of evaluate this relative efficacy of different instruments and, and how people feel about them. Because most of this work by, by Sunstein, where um, they claim that nudges are, are hugely accepted by people, well, people only get the choice of a nudge. Uh, maybe only a couple of papers look at what happens if you then pit a nudge against uh, a, a tax or something like that, right? Um, so yeah, what we are trying to do is design longitudinal studies and trying to assess the shift. In terms of Carl's point on um, whether this is going to have any effect on electoral perspectives or what's going to mean. I mean, this is not uncommon in the past. We have seen with Thatcherism, um, uh, there was a sort of populist um, authoritarian regime um, where the state of the role was minimized. But again, the state is telling you that the role of the state has been minimized. So it's not uncommon to see this shift. And uh, quite a lot of countries globally, if we see, um, they do adopt this kind of a, of a political narrative where they do tell uh, people what's good for them. Um, in terms of Anindita's question on whether this, this is a disposition rather than just situational, um, again, I think it's too early to comment on that. Um, the work I showed by Miriam and colleagues, um, they do say that it's some people are certainly disposed. It's an underlying feeling and COVID has just made it more prominent that these are the people who are then supporting these measures. And of course, one of the drawbacks of these kind of YouGov polls is that, I mean, how representative are this? Uh, how big a sample are we talking about? So there are lots of problems of then talking about these and extrapolating the work. So I think my sort of 
takeaway from here is we need to wait um, and we need to see with more sort of concrete research um, to, to say anything about what's going to happen. Maybe maybe Adam can add on more to that. Thank you. Yes, Adam. Yeah, I mean, I'll be very quick because um, they're really huge questions. You could talk all, all day about those questions, couldn't you? Um, I mean, I, I, I guess, I'm guessing that um, we're going through this pandemic now and we're all under this spotlight and behaving in these particular ways. And we think that these ways, you know, this situation is going to last forever in a sense. It's the most important thing that we've gone through probably in most of our lifetimes. I mean, you, usually humans revert back to their pre-existing behaviours most of the time, don't they? So maybe three or four years time, we'll find ourselves doing, you know, very similar things that we were, were doing before the pandemic, even perhaps before that, what might happen is there might be much stronger rea uh, reactions from government, I suppose, to future pandemic threats than there has been in the past. And that could be good or bad. I mean, Ganja mentioned at the beginning, I think that, that there's been four or five major pandemic threats in the last 15, 20 years, isn't there? SARS, MERS, Ebola, swine flu, etc. I mean, if the government had acted to that extent, uh, that they have eventually reacted to this particular pandemic in all of those instances, that's going to place huge costs on, uh, you know, the economy, on mental health, all those sorts of things. And in many cases, with many pandemics, ultimately not with the benefits that you would see because the pandemic wouldn't actually play out. Um, just, I'll just finish by, uh, this question by saying that I think that the direction that I was sort of referring to in my own talk is one of the, one of the huge debates I think that's going to happen within behavioural public policy, whether you should be use, continuing to use behavioural interventions, at least in terms of the rhetoric, to focus upon the paternalistic measures, i.e. trying to behave, change behaviours for the good of the, those persons themselves, or whether we should part that to one side now and say we should only really be using these interventions when people are imposing harms on others. And, it, and to my mind, I think that's, that's a very strong argument and even though a lot of those uh, interventions that have been introduced in the past that have been defined as nudges actually have a much stronger externality justification to them than an internality justification to them. So I'll just finish on that. Thank you, Adam. So with that, I will, um, if it's okay, I'm going to be great to hear from Ganga and Nick a uh, response to that, both in terms of your claim that, well, we'll just, we might just return to pre-pandemic levels. So perhaps all this benefit of practice won't carry over. Uh, and then secondly, should we redefine um, behavioural science, behavioural economics in terms of just focusing on these externality concerns? Because there are just so many of them that, that would keep all of our careers going until the end of our lives. And um, would you like to go first on that, Ganga? Yeah, um, thank you. I think that this is a really fascinating question because I've always been very confused about what is really an internality versus an externality and how much do internalities become externalities? <laughs> so, you know, so and where do we actually draw the line and where does that cross over? Right. And to take a very small example, it's like the, the right to travel, the right to have a holiday, you know, the right to unwind. <laughs> and then in terms of the emissions caused because of a business class flight, because I have a right to take that flight, because I'm really stressed out from my job versus, uh, you know, maybe take the train. Like, so it's not often very clear. And I'd love to unpack that a bit more, because as someone who does care about climate change, for me, it feels like everything end up ends up being an externality because we're such social animals and we live such interconnected worlds. <laughs> so often I think that that is quite challenging. I think the second thing is, I think, the issue of is this actually a dispositional versus is this a permanent change? 
we tried to sort of unpack that a little bit with the COVID tweets because we wanted to see actually, is there a change in the way we're actually talking about this, these issues with each other? And that might be some sort of a broad proxy, maybe a very imperfect one to see, actually, is there a change in this mindset? We, we don't have data, which goes very long. And Sanjay and me are trying to figure out ways to study this issue more systematically. Um, and of course, we have to be very careful because the way people speak about something and the narratives don't necessarily translate to behavior. As behavioral scientists, we've spent a lot of time talking about the action intention gap, uh, hedonic adaptation, the way that we ultimately settle to old patterns. But the fundamental thing here, I think, is actually how we respond from a policy perspective and the incentives we have to act collectively. So I don't think preferences are inherent. They're, they're really endogenous. They change to big shifts, which essentially means we can create more collective cultures. We can create more collective action if there's a will to do so. And if we figure out what these externalities are and we decide to act on them. Um, so I, I think nothing is given. I think they, it has to be created and constructed. So I'll sort of leave it there for Nick because he's in the act of creating and constructing them. <laughs> Great, Th thanks, Ganga. Um, yeah, I mean to add on, I mean to add on the, to Adam's um, internality externality point. I think it's absolutely right that the um, the focus should be on externalities. And in some, some ways, as you were pointing out, Ganga, I mean climate change is almost always really a, an externality issue. I mean that my, my you know, the climate's sort of a good for us all. It's not a good for me. And my own impact is so tiny. And I think that, so to the extent that there's a spillover from us thinking um, constraints on our behavior for the common good, which we all think are a good idea, uh, is something that we'll have, we're willing to deal with, to have more of, that actually may be a positive. Uh, I, I, I do think we need to be cautious about that spilling over into um, aggressive measures to, to to try and live to just direct people's lives in a way that's better better for them than they can decide themselves. I think that's a, a tricky thing to to do successfully. Um, in in the on the question of um, stability of these changes, um, I think the general probably the general rule indeed is that everything goes back to normal before after a while, except that um, changes that were already in progress because they actually um, reflect some underlying preferences or change of technology, um, they, they, they are accelerated by a, a, something like a, a crisis of some kind, those tend to, um, tend to stick. And, and a lot of things that we've, we, we would naturally think of in the context of COVID-related changes like more remote working and so on, um, home deliveries, and these things are going to, these are probably things that aren't going to change back completely. And I think a really interesting policy question is how far the government tries to push back to restructuring the economy how it used to be or to what extent it's willing to embrace the thought well we sort of jumped five years here not necessarily in output that's for sure but in terms of the way we're living and well let's just go on from there um and i'd rather hope it took, took the latter approach um a final quick thing um on this sort of question about what's justifiable um in terms of um imposing restrictions on our lives. I think one of the things that's so important and it came up in, bo in both of um, Ganga and Sanchayan's talks is the is, is what, you know, what, are the, what do we collectively think about it? I mean, if these policies are popular, if we think, yes, you can, you, can, you have persuaded me, the, the member of the public, that this is a worthwhile restriction to place on my liberty for the common good, then that seems a pretty, that seems a pretty strong um, reason to, to, to allow it. But on the other hand, if we start to impose things on us that collectively that we are not convinced by as a public, um, either just directly overriding public will or doing them by stealth, that seemed extremely sinister and we want to definitely avoid that at all costs.
Thank you. And that uh, touches on a little uh, a question from Celeste Hibbert, who asked about the importance of changing beliefs, not just habits. Are beliefs harder to shift than habits? Mm-hmm. And I think, um, Ganga, your, your, the work on narratives actually shows um, and what you've just said there, Nick, in terms of the importance of buy-in and perhaps narratives or stories are, are, are certainly one way in which we get that collective buy-in helps us get at this shift in beliefs, which might be more sustainable than just a shift in habits. Um, there are a couple more questions on um, on authoritarianism, which I'll go back to if we have time, but um, there are a couple uh not on that. Um, one was looking at um, digital life, Scott Pardo, um, thinking about the push towards a more digital life because of COVID. What about the dark side of that, the mental health impacts? Might we use this as an opportunity to rebalance the pace towards digitization that we're seeing over recent years? Any, any, um, anybody want to jump in on that? I suspect it might. Yeah, Sunshine. I think one of the things, and, and going back to Nick's point, is that we, we so far have seen the transition um, from going from pre-COVID to COVID. We still haven't seen what this transition might look from, from COVID to post-COVID, right? Like, for instance, we have gone to this, we've adapted ourselves to being working from home. Um, how hard is it going to be to return back to our normal lives? And we've had like, well-being is um, and mental well-being is, um, is is a serious matter right now because people have been completely isolated but will this then prompt a permanent change in our behavior that we find it we are social animals are we going to now find it harder to go back and mix with other people um i don't know it's just it's just one thing that i always keep thinking how hard would it be for me to now go back to normal um our predefined normals and and go to office every day for instance, or, or mix with people and have a coffee break. Yeah, can I just add, add a quick thought to that? I mean, I completely agree at a personal level, Sanchez, and I have the same feeling. It just the idea of just doing normal stuff, it just seems really weird now, doesn't it? I can't, can't really imagine it. Um, and I, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that the impacts, of, obviously the impacts of the pandemic have been very differential, but also how we want to live our lives in the future are going to be very different from one person to the next. So, um, and I, I know a couple of, uh, companies uh, who have been survey- surveying their um, staff on, yeah, what do you want to do? How, do you want to come back to the office or not? And there are really big differences. Some people absolutely definitely do. And lots of people say, no, 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 I definitely, definitely don't. And and I think you know, clearly there's going to have to be some kind of mixed economy where people spend some time in the office and they have maybe the option to spend all that time in the office and some people almost entirely work from home. It's going to have to be much, much more flexible. But I think that the the key is going to be not trying to impose one model or the other, but just being as adaptable, as adapting to what our preferences turn out to be. And we don't really know yet how that's going to play out, but I suspect some quite big changes might stick, in fact. We have time for one last question, and we won't have time to hear everyone's response to this. Um, Thomas Dolphy asks, what are your 2021 predictions? Can this be a landmark year for policies to tackle climate change with events like COP26? Um, Ganga, Adam, um, do you want to come in on your one-line predictions? Finish us off. I think my one-line prediction is that really we we all have to start talking to people about connecting this issue and actually put it on the policy agenda and talk about the benefits from doing that. So I think some ways of doing that has been win-win strategy, sort of conversation and narratives. But I think it it goes a bit beyond that, and I think. The big challenge now, I think, is, as Adam was saying, this to convince people that this is a big externality issue and there's a lot of opportunity to make change. Um, and, and I think both across policymakers as well as across families, individuals at home, 
it's really making that connection explicit and talking about this in sense of an opportunity, which will push us a bit more there. Um, that's my takeaway there. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. So we are all in this together, whether we like it or not. Uh, whether that's a kind of a hopeful slogan, it is also a reality. And we can't, uh, just as we can't separate our internalities from our externalities, so we can't really separate COVID from the climate crisis. Um, which is why it's great to have examples like this, interdisciplinary conversations, um, rethinking behavioral sides and maybe rethinking what, what our lives might be and maybe the kind of worlds we can build when we're faced with these big crises. Thank you all very much. I wish we could continue talking, but I, I, I hope we can um, continue the conversation in other ways. Please do make sure everyone watching, uh, thank you so much for coming, giving us time, your time, and please do stay focused and stay tuned and the LSE Festival checking out all the further events that will engage us for the rest of the week. A huge thank you to all of my speakers and to everyone. Goodbye.